we're going to make our way to the book of Psalms, Psalms chapter 90. We're going to just come through this text tonight and uh, study it together. And uh, Psalm 90 has always been one that has intrigued me. It um, carries a lot of a truth that we can find in other passages, but this is the one psalm that is attributed to Moses. And uh, we'll, we'll look at this together tonight. And uh, the title of the message is Learning to Live Wisely Unto God. And I uh, pray to be an encouragement to us uh, in our Christian life. So let's look at verse 1 as we begin reading through this text. Moses is writing here, and it's, it's really a prayer of Moses uh, as you read through it. But he says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are as but yesterday, when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away with a flood, they are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath, we bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy, or by reason of strength, eighty, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, away, gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad as, the many days, as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let, the, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord of our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This uh, particular psalm really brings into... Uh, the focal point, the brevity of life and how we use our life to some degree. And when we think about life, is there anything more valuable and precious to us? What could you name that's more valuable than life itself? We know that every day is a gift from our God and life is precious and it is valuable. There is nothing that we could really in, in this world compare to it. And since life is of the highest value to us and we only have a limited amount of time in our life, that ought to prompt us to consider how it is we use our life, right? That which is valuable really is what prompts us to use wisdom and how we use it. We're trying to teach our kids how money works, and uh, I think for Jubilee's birthday, somebody had sent her a card with some money, and so we gave David just a little bit of money too. We took him to Walmart, and we're going to allow them to try to pick out something to get. And But along the way, we're teaching them that you have this amount, and so this is what you're limited to. And so, you know, you go down the toilet aisle, it's like, ooh, I want that, or I want this. I want, you know, they want all of it, right? Uh, but when you start talking about numbers and start showing, well, you have enough for this, this one bigger toy, or maybe you have enough to get these three smaller toys. And so they begin to contemplate and think that, you know what, we're, we don't have enough to get all these things. And so their question to me naturally was, well, Dad, can you just go get us some more money? <laughs> and uh, and I, I, I would say, uh, yeah, I would love to do that if I could, but <laughs> uh, money is not something that grows on trees. Now, 
money is something that we can maybe improve a little bit in our life if we, say, work hard and, uh, you know, get a new job or whatever. But when it comes to life itself, there's no way for you to go grab more time. You can't work harder to increase it. You can't do anything to add uh, to your life. Uh, maybe you can try to eat healthy and, you know, avoid certain uh, sicknesses and illnesses, but ultimately you don't have a control over when you're going to die anyway. So um, life is the most valuable, the most precious thing that we have. So the question that comes to us is how wise are we with our life in the years that remain? One of the central focuses of this psalm is that particular issue. It's at the center of the psalm as you look at verse uh, verse. Number 12, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart to wisdom. Well, why does Moses say this? What prompts him to say this? And I think it's important to understand the backdrop here, uh, the context of this particular psalm. Now, it is attributed to Moses, and all the evidence points to it being, being written by Moses. Uh, we look at a couple different opinions of, of the backdrop of this. James Boyce suggests that Moses wrote Psalm 90 during the events of Numbers 20. Uh, which records the death of his sister Miriam and his brother, the high priest Aaron, and as well as Moses' sin of striking the rock, which would ultimately lead to his death. Uh, But most others would say that Moses wrote this nearing the end of the wilderness wanderings. Uh, when, when, When we know that Israel was wandering in the wilderness because they had refused to go in the promised land, and what was the judgment on them? There was a whole generation that was going to wander. They're not going to get to enter. And what's going to happen to that generation in the wilderness? They're going to die there. Don't, they don't get this promise of going into the promised land anymore because of their unbelief. And so they had a definite, limited time by God on a whole generation of people as they went through these wilderness wanderings. And, and so regardless of, of which view you take, this, this psalm is written by Moses. And guess what? Moses also didn't enter the promised land. So it applies to that generation of time, that generation that is going to be wandering and not get to enter. So when you look at the context of that and the backdrop, the days of this generation and these people, they are numbered. They are numbered. They are full of uncertainty. They're not going to get to go to the promised land. They don't know exactly uh, when each individual is going to die. And so Moses writes this knowing that he and a whole generation are not going to live long enough to go into the promised land. And that brings up this issue of the brevity of life, the importance of using wisdom with your life, and what you ought to do with the remaining of it as we look to the talent tail end of the psalm. So notice we have three points through this text I want to point out to you. And the first one is really lays the foundation for all the rest. Uh, notice with me, number one, we see the contrast that Moses gives. There's a contrast that Moses gives in the opening part of the first section of this chapter. Now, here's the first part of the contrast. God is eternal in His nature. God is eternal in His nature. So he's going to contrast the eternality of God over against the very brief, fragile life of man. And so Moses begins in verse 1 by saying, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Now, that's... That is the first and foremost principle for all of us as Christians to recognize, is that God's people have forever belonged to Him. No matter what generation they live in on this earth, uh, God is their God. He has always been their dwelling place. He has always been their God. Now, what does it mean by dwelling place? Well, the word there uh, literally means refers to help or assistance. It can also refer to refuge. 
And so, in a, in a, in a true sense, Moses is saying that, that God has always been the refuge or the help, the aid, the assistance, this dwelling place for His people in every generation. In every generation. Now, when we think of the Lord being the dwelling place of His people, we, we, we know that even in our own life. He is our refuge. He's our hope. He's the one who is our protector, our guider, our provider. And so this, this passage is comforting for us because there is no generation of God's people where He has ceased to be their God. He's always the God over His people. No matter where the people of God are or what they are enduring, the Lord is their dwelling place, the one whose presence is with them and protection is over them. So as we come through this, notice also that this would have been especially important to the Israelites journeying through the wilderness with no place of protection. They didn't have walled cities like all the other uh, people around them, right? Their enemies they had walled cities and uh, uh, different towns that they could fortify. The Israelites are wandering. They're, they're exposed. And so they're in a desert place. And we read through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, and we read how the many things they face, right? We're thirsty. How are we going to have water? We're hungry. How are we going to have food? And what did God do throughout every step of the way? He gave them exactly what they needed. So, so it's demonstrated through their wilderness wanderings how He is their dwelling place, how He's the one who takes care of them. Moses said it this way in, in Deuteronomy thirty-three twenty-seven: The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And He thrust out the enemy before you and said, Destroy. When they came in contact with enemies, he's the one who gave them the victory. But notice how Moses' focus is the eternal God. The eternal God. You remember how God introduced himself to Moses at the burning bush when uh, he gave Moses the commission to go to Egypt? And Moses said, well, who am I going to say sent me? What was God's response? Tell them, I am hath sent you. I am is a name that, that in, uh, points to the self-existence, the uh, eternal nature of God, His self-sufficient nature. And so even though that generation of Israelites, they, they had lacked faith and they were bound to judgment to die in the wilderness, the Lord still watched over them through the remainder of that time. He was still with them even though they were uh, stripped of their blessing of going into the promised land. But notice how Moses in our text connects the fact that God is their dwelling place in every generation to the eternal nature of God and His power in creation. Notice in verse number 2, and I love this passage. This is a fundamental passage that points to the eternal nature of God. He says in verse 2, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You are God. So what's, what's this bring our focus to? It focuses on the creation that God brought forth and that He formed. He brought forth and He formed. All of creation from the furthest galaxy to the invisible atoms that you can't see that are all around is the handiwork of God. He brought them forth out of nothing. There was nothing in the beginning, just God, and He brings out of nothing, by His power, everything that is. Creation testifies to the infinite power of God. And we see this plain truth by faith, don't we? 
Hebrews 11.3, or excuse, yeah, 11.3. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now, you can logically, all of creation logically points to the fact that there's a creator, right? But by faith, you see the glory of the creator in his creation. By faith, we see that all of these things come from the one true, eternal, omnipotent God. Now, Moses says this statement about the Lord before all of these things, and I love this statement, from everlasting to everlasting. Any of us able to measure that distance? From everlasting to everlasting. Now, we could measure this building from front to end. We could measure it, right? We have a tangible way of measuring it. But from everlasting to everlasting, that's, that's impossible. That's infinite, right? And Moses says, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You are God. That, that, that is who he is. Now, that shows us his eternal nature. Before there was a beginning, there was God. God is not God because man gives him recognition as God. God was God before man was ever created. And so whether man gives him recognition as God doesn't change the fact that he is God. And so God was God long before any man would have recognized such. He is God eternally and does not change. God was God before time began, and he will still be God after history concludes. From everlasting to everlasting. I love what God says to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 57, 15, he says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, and listen to this description, who inhabits eternity, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. He goes on to say, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. He says through Isaiah, I'm the one who inhabits eternity. Inhabits eternity. We, we can't fathom that truth, can we? It's beyond what we can fathom, beyond what our mind can comprehend, and yet that's where he dwells. Here's a quote by Stephen Charnock. Stephen Charnock has wrote much on the attributes of God, and he says on the eternity of God, he says, eternity is the duration of his essence. And when we say God is eternal, we exclude from him all possibility of beginning and ending, all flux and change. His duration is as endless as his essence is boundless. He always was and always will be and will no more have an end than he had a beginning. Quite deep thoughts there. So because of this truth of God's eternal nature, we see for Moses, if you come down to verse 4 for a moment, what does he say of, 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 about this? He says, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Well, how long is a thousand years? I mean, we can somewhat measure that, but we we typically we don't get to live northward of a uh, hundred years, do we? If you do, you're very rare uh, to be able to live northward of, uh, over a hundred years. It's hard for us to fathom a thousand years, and yet Moses says a thousand years are like what to God? They're like yesterday. Now all of us can comprehend yesterday, can't we? You remember what you did yesterday? Remember what you ate yesterday? I don't either. (laughs) 
But, but I can measure yesterday. I mean, we operate in hours of 24 hours, right? Uh, and so we, can, we have a comprehension of what yesterday's like. But God says a thousand years are as but yesterday in his eyes. Moses says God sees a thousand years in that way. Second Peter 3, 8, Peter put it this way to the saints. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Now, that does not mean that there's this rigid thousand-year-day calendar, which some have portrayed that, well, a thousand years is a day, so God's waiting until he gets to eight days, which would be 8,000 years, and then the world's going to end. There's crazy nuts that try to create, you know, different formulas and stuff for trying to figure out God's plan like that. Uh, Peter's only saying that this is, time is irrelevant to God. I mean, God is not bound to time. Uh, that that, that uh, it's not the same with us as it is with God. It magnifies the eternal nature of God. And this is a comfort when we think of God as the dwelling place of his people. He transcends. He's, he's here in every generation of God's people. He's always their God. But this brings us to the second point of the contrast. We see God is eternal in his nature, but contrast to this, man is temporal in his nature. Mankind is temporal in his nature, his physical nature specifically. Notice that Moses says in verse 3, You return, man, to dust and say, Return, O children of man. You return, man, to dust, saying that God does this. You return, man, to dust and say, Return, O children of man. Some, some translations may render that word dust as destruction. Uh, the returning of man to dust is a form of punishment or destruction. Uh, and so... So God turns a man back to the dust from which he was formed as a punishment. After all, death is a punishment, isn't it? It's a result of something. And what is it a result of? It is a result of sin. Now, this is what God promised Adam in the very beginning. He said after he had sinned, Genesis 3.19, he says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken... For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. That, that's the destination of our human bodies, right? I mean, we were formed from the dust. Remember in Genesis 2, the Bible describes the creation of man. God formed man of the dust of the earth, and he breathed in him the breath of life, and he became a living soul. Well, our bodies are going to return to the very source from which he created them. This reveals to man that his life on earth does not last forever, but it comes to a conclusion, and with the conclusion of physical life is the return to the earth for the physical body. Now, people may not think of the brevity of life when all things are going well. Most people don't, do they? Life's going well, you just go on your merry way, and uh, you're not really thinking about the reality of death. But the truth is, is that death can grip any one of us in any moment, any moment, whether things are going good or whether they're going bad. And this is further explained in verse 5 through 6. Notice what he says. He says in, in regard to this, uh, the, the passing of man and the passing of years, he says, you sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, in the evening it fades and withers. A lot, of, a lot of parallels there, a lot of illustrative words that Moses gives. Our life, our years, they're like a dream. How many of us have ever had a dream? We've all dreamed, right? You ever had a dream that 
was so vivid, but it went by so fast, you wake up, it felt like it was just a moment, didn't it? I mean, every dream, it feels like it's just a moment, but when you wake up, you realize you've been asleep for eight hours, right? It, it just quickly goes from you. Your sleep and dreams, they quickly flee from you. He says we're also like grass that is renewed in the morning. Grass grows, and then what happens with it? It fades and it withers. Spurgeon comments here on this particular issue, and he says, As grass is green in the morning and hay at night, so men are changed from health to corruption in a few hours. We are not cedars or oaks, but are only poor grass, which is vigorous in the spring, but lasts not a summer through. What is there upon earth more frail than we? He's right. We are frail. We are frail people. Now, all of this clearly shows us the temporal nature of man in this world. All of creation follows this pattern. Everything dies. Everything dies. It's unmistakable for us in this life. Job 14.2, speaking of man, he comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. James 4.14, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. The prophet Isaiah spoke of this same principle. I'll read it to you. Isaiah 40 and verse 6 through 8. Notice that the scripture says, a voice says cry and he said, I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. What a sobering truth this is for us. God is eternal, man is temporal, and this is the contrast. Now we might wonder, why is it this way? Why is it that man's life comes to a conclusion the way it does? And how should these truths provoke a man to live his short life? Notice with me, number two, the corruption Moses sees. The corruption Moses sees. And this, we we keep in context here what he's talking about with that generation of Israel, but we see a broader context in light of ourselves and humanity as a whole. But the, the first thing I want to point out to you is that man's sin has brought God's judgment. This is fundamental... Christianity 101. Man's sin is what brought this upon us. Now, here's the reality. God has the right to end life and take life. That's His prerogative. He has the right to do that. And as we see in this text, there's a reason man's life ends the way it does. In verse 7 through 10, He says, We are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The enemy of death is brought upon us as judgment from God. Judgment for sin. He says in verse 8, You have set out iniquities before our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your, principle, in the light of your presence. Now that... That principle is true for all of humanity because all of humanity is wholly affected by sin, inwardly, outwardly. There is no trace of sin that is not exposed and open before God. Now, there may be sins that are not open and exposed before others, but there is no sin that is not open and exposed before God. 
Spurgeon again comments, there is no secret sins before God. He unearths man's hidden things and exposes them to the light. So, so that's a general principle for all of humanity. But I think also this psalm speaks of an exceptional sin, a severe wrath, then total devastation that was brought on that generation of Israel. The level of its intensity is seen in the wilderness wanderings. And so we keep in mind the context here of who's writing and when they're writing. And so Moses writes this in the days of Israel's wilderness journeys. And so having begun with such, they all started out seeing God's supernatural instances, didn't they? Deliverance from Egypt, provision in the wilderness, all the way to the point where they're brought to the edge of the promised land and they sent the spies in. The spies came back with this news, oh, they're like giants. And the majority of them said, we can't go in. We can't go in. What was inward and sinful that came outward in their mouth? Their doubt and lack of faith in God. Which that was evidence all through, right? Moses, you brought us out here to die when they couldn't, they were thirsty. Moses, you brought us out here to die when they were hungry. They get to the edge of the promised land. God takes care of them through all of those things. And they still do not believe in the God that has brought them there. They don't believe that God can take care of them and give them victory and give them the land that he rescued them from Egypt for. And so we can understand why God gives such a judgment here. All right, this entire faithless generation, you're going back into the wilderness and you're going to walk until all of you die. The generation after you is going to be the ones to go. This was the wrath. This was the wrath and the judgment that is brought upon them. Justice has shortened their years. And so there's a direct application to that generation, but we see a broader application to all of humanity in the fact that we all pass away under sin. All our years come to an end. Now, how long do we have in this fragile life? Look at verse 10. Moses says, The years of our life are 70, or by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone. Now we look at this text, and is this, is this a definite mark for every person who lives? No, it's not. What about those who die before 70 or those who die later than 80? There are many in the ancient, ancient times, ancient world, who lived exceptionally long, even near to 1,000 years. Remember Methuselah? Even Adam, the first man, lived over 900 years. But that was pre-flood world. There's a whole different scenario there that applies to life expectancy. But post-flood the life expectancy of man began to change. It no longer living hundreds of years. If you did, it was a rare case in case of Moses. By the time we get to the time of Moses, the general life expectancy was around 70 to 80 years, much like it is today. But it's not a definite mark that every person is going to live to either 70 or 80. A lot of people die long before they ever get to 70. And then there's some people that are blessed to live beyond, uh, beyond 80. I had a lady in our church uh, where I came from. She passed away. She was 102, 102 years old, still, still strong as an ox in a lot of ways. I mean, uh, but time came, God took her home. So, so God does give some people strength to live beyond, and then sometimes men don't, people don't live up to 70. Moses himself was an exception to this. Moses, in Deuteronomy 34-7, Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. Now think about that. Moses still has great strength and vitality, but God took his life because of what he had done. 
smote the rock instead of speaking to it the second time. And, and so this number, when we look at it, it fits the Israelite experience in the wilderness as Moses would be focusing on the general lifetime of the people. That generation would be brought to an end. The sin of the Israelites against God by refusing to end the promised land brought shortened life upon them, and it's all because they had forgotten their God and did not trust Him. They did not trust Him. Deuteronomy 32, 18. You were unmindful, Moses says, of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God that gave you birth. That's ultimately what it boils down to. Now, I have to think about Moses through all of this. You, you talk about Moses' struggles. <laughs> Man, dealing with, with, dealing with those people in the wilderness and all their griping and complaining, and they get there, and then they won't go in. And now Moses has to live through all of this and basically watch this entire generation die off. Think about Moses' experience. He, he's the one who brought them out of Egypt, and now he's watching them die in the wilderness. That generation, watching them die. What a sad judgment sin brings. And this is what man's life consists of. Job 14.1, Job said this, Man who is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. We can all testify to that, don't we? Life is full of trouble. Various kinds. The core cause of all of this trouble, all this suffering, all this death, it is sin. He warned man at the very beginning what would happen at the prospect of death. And man did exactly that which brought God's wrath upon us. And here's the reality is that God is always angry at the wickedness of man. Always. Psalm 711, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. The lost world around us that lives in their pleasures and sins and it really has no thought about life and eternity. They have no clue, no clue how much wrath rests upon them. So, so with this reality of our life that is quickly fading away, what do we need to do with it? Well, letter B, man needs wisdom to live rightly. And that's what Moses prays for. Remember, this is a prayer on behalf of him and the people. In verse 12, this is really the focal point. Teach us to number our days. Because of this contrast, how big and eternal God is, how small and temporal we are, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. But you'll notice what he says before that in verse 11. This is, this is really what prompts this. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? This is really what prompts us to think with wisdom. Because if you don't think about these things, you're not going to think about the brevity of life and a holy God that you're accountable to. Do we know the seriousness of sin and judgment? Every person should live in light of these truths, but but sadly the majority of the world does not. They wander around in their wickedness. They're building up an account of wrath for the day of judgment with no consideration for the brevity of their life, that they could die any moment, or the very purpose of life itself. Romans 2.5, Paul said it this way, Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That's what mankind does. But those who know the Lord should be more aware, more conscious of the dangers of sin, the shortness of life, and the very purpose for which we have life as Christians. Psalm 39.4, David prayed this way, and we ought to pray the same way. O Lord, make me to know my end, 
And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. So that brings us into verse 12. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. If there's one thing we need to use our limited and valuable time of life in this world, it is wisdom, the wisdom of God. Wisdom enables us to know and understand how to apply life the right way. And what does wisdom teach us about what we have to know and how to apply life? It is all unto the glory of God. It is unto God. That is what life is about. We, we need this wisdom. Proverbs 3, 13 through 14. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain of her is better than the gain of silver and her profit better than gold. Man chases after silver and gold and every other material thing they can think of. But they don't chase after wisdom, do they? They don't chase after wisdom. But you and I who know the Lord, this should be our priority. We ought to be chasing after wisdom, seeking for her as for a hidden treasure. You can see how important it would be for the Israelites who have numbered days to be able to use them wisely unto the Lord. A great number of them had a limited time that they would not go beyond. And the reality is, you and I today, we have a limited time that we also will not go beyond. We just don't know when it is. We don't know when it is. But here's a question for us. How would you live your days if you knew how many you had left? Think about that. How would you live out your days if you knew how many you had left? The New Testament principle for us is this, and it is wisdom. It connects Ephesians 5, 15 through 17. We'll get there eventually on Sunday mornings. But Ephesians 5, 15 through 17, let me read this passage to you. Paul, Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, and he says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And notice what's connected to this wisdom. Making the best use of what? Your time. The time. Because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And he gives us all kinds of Christian application throughout chapter 4 and chapter 5 of, of how we ought to use our time, how we ought to use our Christian life. And so the most unwise and foolish thing a man can do in his life is to live without his eternal God upon his heart and upon his mind. And friend, if you want true wisdom for life, it always is going to begin in knowing and fearing the Lord. For that's where true wisdom comes from. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the holy is insight. So do we live with this kind of wisdom? Notice with me number three, the compassion that Moses desires. Compassion that Moses desires. And as you come through the rest of this chapter, which we won't take too long in, you come down through verse 13 through the rest of verse 17, Moses is really pleading for compassion and mercy upon their people through the rest of their time. He prays for God's mercy, firstly, upon the people. Given that man is sinful and limited to a brief time in this world, that is the plea. We need mercy. Verse 13, you'll notice he says, Return, O Lord, how long have pity on your servants. This is a prayer for God's favor and mercy. Will his wrath continue forever? He pleads for mercy from him upon the Israelites for the remaining time of their journey in that barren wilderness. 
He says in verse 14, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. What great satisfaction there is when the wrath of God is turned away and mercy has become your embrace. It brings joy. It brings peace. The Israelites no doubt realized how big they had screwed up. They don't get to go in. They have to stay out. They're going to die in a barren wilderness. And so their prayer, Moses' prayer on behalf of them, is that for the remainder of their time, Lord, be with us. Be merciful to us. Cause us to still have joy in these last times. They still desire mercy. Now, here's the reality. The Lord could have consumed them on the spot when they disbelieved him to go in the promised land, couldn't he? He did that in the past. Swallowed up a whole group of people into the earth. He could have done that. But the very fact that he allowed them to live even longer is an act of mercy. He allowed them to continue. And it is his mercy that has given them more time that they deserve. The plea of Moses is for the Lord to satisfy and gladden them in their remaining days by his mercy. Verse 15, he seeks also, he says, For as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen evil, make us glad in that remaining time. But that brings me to think about how merciful and patient God is with me in my own life and with all of us. Think of the satisfaction and joy that salvation brought to your soul on the day of your conversion when you were awakened to God's wrath that you're worthy of and it was on you, the condemnation rested upon you, but His mercy embraced you by the work of Jesus, by the cross, through faith in Him. You know that mercy. But I think even beyond just my salvation, every day of my Christian life has been an act of mercy from the Lord. He's merciful to us, very merciful. So we ought to seek that and thank Him for it. Notice also letter B, he prays for God's glory to be known, for His works, His glory to be known in verse 16 and 17. Notice he says, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Now, I want to point this out because this is important for this particular context. There's a generation that's about to die, a generation who saw all the glorious things in Egypt and in the wilderness, but not everybody who goes into the promised land got to see those things. There's a generation that's born in the wilderness, a generation that was not in Egypt. What's Moses asking? Moses is praying. He wants the upcoming generation, their children, the children of the servants, to know the works of the Lord and His Word so that they will not be like the previous generation, stubborn in their own disbelief. And herein, I think, is a great principle for our own thinking in, our, in every generation. Psalm 78, and verse 5 through 8. Notice this passage with me. Now, the last one I'll turn to. Notice that, the psalmist says, He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded our fathers to do what? To teach to their children. That the next generation might what? Know Him. The children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, 
so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments, that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. This, in essence, is what every generation of Christians must do on behalf of the children and grandchildren that come after them. Teach them to know God, to know Christ, to know truth. And I believe that we see a generation rising up that does not know this, that does not know this, and they need to. So this is what Moses prays on behalf of them, so that their children would know, that we may know your, glory, your glorious power to their children. They need to know the one true God. And to close this prayer, Moses says in verse 17, Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. You notice that he says it's the work of our hands and not his hands. What are they asking here? He desires the favor of God to be upon them so the people will have established a work beyond themselves. And ultimately, that's what we work for, don't it? Isn't it? We, we want to do things that last beyond us. Beyond us. I, I don't want my life and ministry just to die with me. It needs to go beyond me. Past our, past our death. We want that. That's what Moses wanted. That's what they wanted. Works that go beyond them because they're going to die. They don't get to go in the promised land. But they works that go beyond them. And most certainly, if they're going to do that, what do they need? They need wisdom. Wisdom from God to live as they ought to live. I'll close with this quote from Spurgeon. He's commenting on this. Good men are anxious not to work in vain. They know that without the Lord they can do nothing. and Therefore, they cry to Him for help in the work for acceptance of their efforts and for the establishment of their designs. Revelation speaks of the saints who had passed away and says their works do follow them. There's a testimony, there's a life they live, there's something about who they were in Christ that lives beyond them. And that's essentially what you find here as the end result of living wisely unto God in light of the contrast of we're temporal, we're frail, we're going to pass. So we see some great insights from Moses, I think. And the one, one psalm attributed to Moses, I think it's a great one. They had a limited time to live, and so does everybody else. Our life is so brief, especially in the contrast to the eternal nature of God. And we are called to live wisely unto the Lord, and we must learn to do so. You notice that Moses says, teach us to do this. We ought to ask the Lord to teach us to do that because you're not just in, in, you're not downloaded with perfect information the moment you get saved. It's a growing process. Lord, teach us to live wisely, to number our days so that we may do what you would have us to do and bring glory to Him.